0: Ground before the way to leave the air. By the sky tell the sky and tell the sky. The sky, the sky is
1: Welcome to No Filler. My name's Quentin. My brother Travis is out of town this week. So I'm all by my lonesome, and I'm going to bring a Rewind episode your way and uh, revisit our episode from way back in December of 2018 when we covered REM's fourth studio album, Life's Rich Pageant, from 1986. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be shifting gears, going from uh, the 2010s that we've been hanging out in Uh, with that kind of dream pop resurgence that we've been covering the last uh, month, and dive into the alt-college radio rock that was happening uh, around the mid-80s through the 90s. Next week, we're going to cover Polaris, which is a fictional band that was created for the TV series The Adventures of Pete and Pete. We're going to dive into the music from that show and also cover the music from the actual band. They're called Miracle Legion. And um, yeah, lots of great music from that era and from that group and from The Adventures of Pete and Pete. So we're also going to dive into the, quote, orange years from around that era of Nickelodeon that Travis and I grew up watching. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, And then after that, we're going to cover REM's debut record, Murmur. So we thought it'd be good to just kind of take this week off while Travis is out of town, revisit our episode on REM's Life's Rich Pageant, and then we'll be back uh, chatting into your earbuds next week. Uh, Also, don't tell Travis, but I'm going to fade us out with Weird Al's Spam, which is a parody on REM's Stand. Travis is not a a huge fan of Weird Al or any kind of uh, comedy style music, so I'm taking this opportunity to drop one on him. Don't tell him. Maybe he won't notice. All right. Hope you all enjoy this Rewind episode on REM's Life's Rich Pageant.
2: You know, it's, there's a million ways to tell a story. And if, and if you're going to sing a love song, it doesn't always have to say, I love this girl for this reason. Um, it can be a bit more oblique. And sometimes it just confuses people. And sometimes people aren't used to hearing a rock and roll song where they don't have it spelled out for them. That's okay. I, I, this record is a lot more direct. Um, so it's maybe a little bit more about the world outside of us rather than personal.
3: And welcome to No Filler, the music podcast dedicated to sharing the often-overlooked hidden gems that fill the space between the singles on our favorite records. My name is Travis Self. With me, as always, is my brother Q up in Washington. Here I am. There he is. And that was Mr. Peter Buck, guitar player of R.E.M., in a 1986 interview uh, where he was talking about sort of the um, the way that they approached the, the lyrics and the music for their album, Life's Rich Pageant, which had just released when, at the time of that interview. And um, yeah, so basically, as he kind of alluded to there, the music on this album is about sort of the world around them, like they were saying a lot of these songs are kind of political and like not so much about personal things like you said uh but we're gonna get into all of that later first i want to ask you what are your thoughts what are your experiences with rem
1: in general as a band so all positive thoughts my bro for sure um for the most part, most of the, the music of theirs that I've heard, I've enjoyed. What are some of those songs that you've heard, you heard? So, yeah, growing up, um, I guess Imitation of Life was probably the first song of theirs that I heard, you know, that I actually listened to when it was new. You know what I mean? Like, before that, I'm sure it was End of the World as we know it. Um, is that the name of the song or am I just... Yeah, that's, that's the name of the song. That's the name of it, yeah. Okay. Uh and Losing My Religion. But all those songs came out before we were born, I believe, or at least before we I could ever have yeah, actually like made a memory of hearing it. But I remember actually hearing Imitation of Life on the radio. So that came out and in, like, in two thousand one. Okay. That so was on we their were, album Reveal. So we were fourteen when that came out. I remember seeing the music video for it and seeing them on either SNL or maybe Conan.
3: It may have know. even been Total Recross Live, too. It was, was two
4: thousand. Yeah, it could have been. I don't,
1: yeah. Yeah. But no, I love I like R.E.M. a lot. Um, their first album, Murmur, I got into. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the first song on the radio for Europe? Yeah. Yeah, dude. I like that stuff. So, but this so this album that we're covering today I'm not familiar with at all.
3: Okay, so this is their fourth album. So, like you said, Mirror was their first that came out in 1983. Uh Reckoning was the second album, came out in 1984. Reckoning's good too. Yeah, it's great. And then Fables of the Reconstruction was the next one, came out in 85. Uh, the one we're talking about today, Life Switch Pageant came out in 86. If you look at their their first five records, it's it's crazy because it was literally a record every year from 83 to 87. So they were hugely prolific in the 80s. And then four years later in 1991, they came out with Out of Time, uh, which really kind of propelled them into like the mainstream. That that was the album that had Losing My Religion on it, uh, which was a mega, mega huge hit at the time. This is a really good song. Yeah. So anyway, life's rich pageant, as I talked about. Um, actually, you know what? Let's pause on that before we get into it. Before we get too ahead of ourselves, and let's do our weekly segment: what you heard. And um, Q, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Mine really can't tie in at, to REM whatsoever. It's in a whole different building as far as genres are concerned. So maybe it would make more sense for me to go first. I'm not sure.
1: What Mine doesn't either, is. but yeah let's let let's have you go first this time. Okay.
3: So, this week and last week as well, uh, so I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not, but my company shuts down for two weeks, starting on Thursday of next week. So, leading up to that, obviously, we have a ton of work to do. We have a bunch of projects that we got to button up, and so another developer and myself have essentially taken over one of the meeting rooms for the last two weeks and just like buckled down and really worked hard to get something done. And, uh, we just so happen to like the exact same type of music as far as like, I'm going to, I'm going to be really niche here. And this is funny because it has nothing to do with my pick for the day, but, um, we like video game soundtracks, right? Q, you know this about me. Oh yeah. He also likes, um, sort of uh, like down-tempo type stuff or like, you know, electronic music of any type, really. Um, So I was playing uh, some Massive Attack just randomly. And I admit that I have never really listened to this album all the way through until last week, really. And um, it's... What album? It's called Mezzanine. came out in 1998. No, that's
1: like their biggest one. That's right? their yeah, that's
3: their biggest They're uh most well known. Yeah, I, th- I think so. It's it's the album art that I always associate with Massive Attack, right? Same. Yeah. What is that like a It looks like it is that. Some sort of bug, some Yeah. blown up picture of a bug. It's
1: definitely a bug. I wish I could name it off the top of my head cuz yeah. I feel like I should yeah. know the name of that bug.
3: So, um I remember my first sort of like association with Massive Attack was actually uh, this movie that came out in two thousand five called Stay? And it has Ryan Gosling, Naomi Watts, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, that is a
1: powerful.
3: What a great film. film! What a great fucking film. Anyway, there's great music in in that film, and one of the one of the songs it's playing in a in a like a club bar that this guy walks into is track one on Mezzanine called Angel. Anyway. Massive Attack is sort of, um, you know, they were at the the early origins of like trip hop and um, that sort of uh, more, it's really dark uh, sounds and like, you know, it it, it merges like hip hop and like soul and dub with like trip hop and, and all this kind of stuff. Really
1: pretty um, vocals too. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
3: And you're gonna like hear showcased that showcased a lot. You're gonna hear that in this song. What's What's interesting to me is the way that the two vocalists are, are really like stark opposites of each other. But yeah, the the two vocalists that that are on this track, uh, the 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 female vocalist is uh, Elizabeth Fraser, and the male vocalist is Robert. Del Naha might be pronouncing that wrong but anyway they have very very different starkly different singing styles and I think it really like helps with the way that the the, the the vibe that these songs have because she almost sings almost like like uh not like operatic but I mean like very like traditional style like of singing anyway let's just play the track this is track 10 It's called group four, and we're going to jump into about the middle of the song just so you can kind of hear a verse and a chorus. So anyway, here we go.
1: That was really sweet. Yeah, it's awesome. Like right? Yeah, man, that's like a moodier Tosca with with some yeah distorted guitar thrown in.
3: Yeah, I would definitely throw throw Massive Attack into the same the same building at least as as like a Tosca.
1: And it's got that slow, gradual build. Yeah, like, like any good down tempo song, right? Yeah. And what's great um, about it's very it, repetitive, but it's it's worth paying attention to.
3: Yeah, and, and you saw right there. You know, a lot of the songs on this album kind of give you the same kind of thing, where it's like, you know, like I said, his vocals are kind of like they've got some attitude to him, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's, I guess almost
3: it's good you know me. on the verge of rapping, but not really. Uh, and then yeah. like it had that big section there before her vocals came in, where it was just instrumental. You know, he had some guitar yeah, work cool. in the background, and then she yeah, comes a in, build up, and then she comes in with this really like dreamy. Almost like Bjork, or
1: like yeah, the kind of vocals you'd hear on. Uh, oh man, this is probably going to age us big time. But you remember Pure Moods, right? Oh
3: is that like the the infomercial?
1: Yes, it was that. Are that you, so compilation, you, are you, you know? saying like
3: an Inya kind
1: of thing? Like Inya, that yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah.
3: So anyway, um, so that's that. I've been listening to a bunch of just like, you know, instrumental stuff or things like this, which are more like laid back and whatnot. So it'll be nice to segue into REM here in a little bit, but first
1: let's, uh, let's do your pick for the week Q. So uh, I've been starting alphabetically going through uh, my, uh, I guess, older records that I own, you know, ones that I've picked up at thrift stores. Um, not my new stuff, you know, not new artists, uh, but, just the old kind of random stuff that I I always kind of go through it and then re-listen to the albums all the way through and see if if I enjoy them, you know, uh, if I want to keep them on the shelf or not. And I came across this album I kind of forgot about owning. Um, it was just a, a goodwill find. This American guitarist who goes, his name is Al D. Miola. You ever heard of him?
3: Yeah, actually, I have.
1: Yeah, so he's a... I, w- I would put him in the like Pat Metheny category. Okay. Uh, jazz fusion. You know, uh, there were a lot of artists like this around the seventies, like Jeff Beck. Um, yeah. Oh, I can't think of uh, Roy Clark, not Roy Clark, something Clark. Maybe it is Roy Clark. Well, what album do you have? So I have an album of his called. Um, elegant gypsy okay his second studio album came out in 1977 really cool stuff so it's 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 jazz fusion it's um it's pretty wide ranging from song to song um like i think the last song on side a is just very very traditional spanish guitar kind of music um but the song i want to play is the first track on the album it's really cool. It kind of threw me off guard, you know, because I'd forgotten about it. Um, it's a really, really cool track. Uh, so, this is again, um, his name is Al Di Miola. This is a song off of his 1977 record Elegant Gypsy. It's called Flight Over Rio.
3: That may be the first jazz fusion on No Filler.
1: Nah, dude. Pat Metheny.
3: Ah, good point. But the song was more like <laughs> ambient, I guess. You know, the one that we
1: played. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so drummer on that track was Steve Gad, who played on uh, Asia for Steely Dan. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Just on that track. Yeah, uh, okay. Sure. Well, he plays in, and the, there's one other track on this album that he plays.
3: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, Q, when you saw that, I'm guessing you just picked that up based on the cover art or what? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, yeah. what's well, funny, are you looking at his uh, discography right now? Um, I can be. Look at the album art for Land of the Midnight Sun. Because I would pick that up in a hot minute if (laughs) I saw that at a record store. Hell yeah. Because that looks awesome. I haven't yet,
1: but now that I know about the guy, I'm definitely picking it up. Yeah, man.
3: Yeah, that's cool. All right, so let's talk about R.E.M. And specifically, the album that we are covering today, which would be Life's Rich Pageant, which came out in 1986. So, basically... I feel like REM is similar to Talking Heads in a lot of ways, as far as like how they came into like the mainstream. Because they, now they're not, I wouldn't put them in the same group of like the genre. Their genres aren't really the same. Because, like, we talked about Talking Heads, they were more grouped into a new wave. They were kind of considered like, sort of the founders of new wave, you know? Right. REM has always been alternative rock, right? Like you could almost say that they were the sort of at the forefront of alt rock. And like, we, we know that they were hugely influential to grunge bands of the nineties. Um, Kirk Cobain specifically uh, always talked about Michael Stipe and REM as being mega huge influences on him.
1: I had no idea. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Like, it's, it's, there's even, um, I was watching some interviews or some documentary about Kurt Cobain and Michael Stipe, as in the lead singer of REM, um, said that he was talking with, like, before, right before Kurt Cobain died, like, he was planning to, and like, in talks with, with Kurt to do like a collaboration together. And like, he was doing that wow. specifically to try to give him something to like grasp onto, you know, cause everybody was kind of worried about him at the time because he was oh, yeah. depressed and all this kind of stuff. And,
1: Oh man. So
3: like, God knows how that would have been, you know, if they collaborated together. Wow. But anyway, so yeah, REM at the time that they came out and like basically up to, up to this album, they were sort of your classic, like cult following college radio success kind of rock band, you know? Getting sort of this this following, and they've always had the you know when you think about REM an REM song, and when you think about Michael Stipe, like they're kind of known for his lyrics are kind of um, nonsensical, I guess, or like so, sometimes they're kind of known for being like not uh, they don't necessarily make sense, or they're more like uh, metaphorical and like.
1: Especially when you think of the lyrics on "It's the End of the World." Yeah, sure, right. exactly. I wonder if if we could compare him to. Oh man, what's the singer? What's the singer's name? Uh, the Shins. Is it Tim Mercer? Yeah, Mercer. Yeah, Rob Mercer. mm Hmm. Tim Mercer.
3: Um. Something Mercer. Yeah. Let me look it up. I could see that. I'd never ever put those two and two together, but.
1: James Mercer. James Mercer. Yeah. Just where, you know, some people will say, oh, it's a little too highbrow. Like, oh. it's almost like he, he would just one he, he will go about assuming that his audience knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And there's a, there's if he's a, he's referencing yeah. a novelist or something. Like, you know, like, yeah, sure. Like the famous line that everyone knows Leonard Bernstein, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. There's, there's a little bit of that for sure. Um, yeah, Mercer does that kind of stuff and yeah, and at least in the early Shins yeah. music. But another another reason
3: I'm kind of comparing him to to um David Byrne at least is that um it sounds like Michael Seipel's also very like socially awkward when it came to like interviews and stuff.
1: Yeah, you could kind of you can kind of pick that up. Yeah,
3: and there's even I I was reading an interview a 2011 interview that he did with The Guardian um, where he even talked about that where he said so this guy who interviewed him uh, his name is Sean O'Hagan so he's a writer for uh, The Observer I guess it was I guess it was published in The Observer but it, but I, I stumbled upon it on The Guardian website anyway he had interviewed him like three times throughout his career and like the first interview that he had with him was in 1988 uh, which was when they came out with their sixth album, Green. Um, and he was just saying that, like, you know, he would, he answers questions, but like in like really short bursts of words, you know, and sometimes they don't even have mm-hmm. anything to do with the question. And uh, Michael says that, uh, he says, I still hadn't learned how to talk or how to look someone in the eye and finish a thought. I'm much better at that now, but I'll carry that with me my whole life—the massive insecurity of not being articulate. Wow.
2: I feel like, especially,
3: so he's
1: way in his head. Then, that's what way I'm In his own head, right?
3: Exactly. And like, there's the interview. It was the clip that I played that entered us into our Talking Heads episode. That was from a video interview, and we watched that interview. Like you can tell, uh, that David Byrne is super uncomfortable. He's not making eye contact with the interviewee viewer very soft spoken like you could tell kind of the same same kind of thing but anyway it's interesting to me when somebody's like that and then you, you you see them on stage and they're super eccentric like Michael Stipe is super super eccentric on stage always has been like flailing yeah. around he doesn't play guitar yeah. or anything so it's just him and the microphone um and then you the lyrics are really always like you know very like confident and whatnot but anyway so um from what I from what I've read, the album that came out before this one, called "Fables of the Reconstruction," uh, has sort of a like a murkier is kind of the word that I've I've seen a couple times to describe it, and I would agree with that, like not very energetic, sort of like subdued songs on it. Okay, um, and they recorded. For the first time, they recorded overseas. They recorded in London, uh, this album. And apparently it was like cold and rainy the whole time. And like that affected sort of the mood and like it came out on the album. You know, they weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't, you know, they, they were held up in the studio. Like they didn't go out very much because the weather was It kind so of reminds horrible. me of
1: how, you know, we talked about uh, Alice in Chains album Dirt on our yeah. first episode how the LA riots kind of affected
3: yeah they were right down the street the
1: overall feeling and sound of the album
3: yeah exactly Um, but yeah so overall like it's sort of well known that they weren't they aren't too happy um, at least at the time they weren't too happy with the album itself Um, they've gone on to say that it's actually become like one of their favorite albums like in retrospect but they're saying that like you know even like Mike Mills, which is the bass player, is quoted tons of times as saying, like, oh, yeah, it sucks. You know, just like that's what he, that's his response to, oh, what'd you think about Fables of the Reconstruction? Oh, it sucks. So, like, they weren't happy with it, probably because they just had a bad experience recording it. And they didn't really like the experience they had with the, the producer who was a new producer for them, a guy by the name of Joe Boyd, who was actually sort of known for his work with more English folk musicians, including nick drake which is a pretty big deal right oh yeah that's a big yeah. deal but uh so that's why they went with they went with him um but they just in the end they just didn't they weren't they weren't too happy with the way that it, that it sounded but anyway like when you listen when you listen to that album like there's some great songs on there no doubt about it but it does have a sort of like somber vibe throughout the album so anyway when it comes time to record live rich pageant they come back to the United States and they choose a, another producer, again a new guy, uh, named Don Gemin, who ha, uh, had recorded a lot of John Mellencamp's albums and so basically the way they said it is that they kind of liked the sounds of the acoustic guitar on those Mellencamp albums and they wanted to sort of get that sound, you know because mm-hmm. they weren't getting that with the way that the, the previous record turned out. Like these really rich guitar and like whatnot. So anyway, the big thing that I want, Q, that I want you to pay attention to especially is the drumming on this album. Because it's a, it marks a huge change in the way that he drums. And, um, there's, uh, I was reading the, um, the pitchfork review of, they wrote a review for this album. Um, when the 25th anniversary um, edition came out, uh, the guy says, and this is so true, he goes, in addition to giving the melodic leads their own space, he emphasizes the muscle and Barry's beats and the intricate interaction between the rhythm section. Uh, cool. So, as he says here, no wonder the drummer's on the album cover. So, yeah, if you look at the album cover, and this is something that I wanted to talk about. Actually, first... You know, first let's play the first song. Oh, good call. Okay. Yeah, so let's play the first song. So just know that coming out of the recording session and the album Fables Reconstruction Fables of the Reconstruction, they wanted to sort of change the the get a change of pace. And that's why they went back to America. And that's why this album sounds So energetic and so like, it sounds louder and it sounds more confident. Like they just, they wanted to, to get back and and sort of do more, more energetic songs. And that's what this is. So this first track that we're going to play is actually track one. It's called Begin the Begin.
0: Begin again, Like Martin Luther's end
1: that's an interesting song structure. Yeah. It seems like, uh, it's like you're expecting like a transition of some kind and it just keeps going, like just keeps going and going and going as far as like the same kind of, it almost seems like the verse just keeps going.
3: Yeah. So that's interesting. You say that dude, because um, according to Peter Buck, which is a guitar player, he said that when they started to write the song, at least the music for it, they sat down and wanted to create a, uh, as he says, a crazy song with no re- repetition except for the riff. So like that, yeah, they were hmm. going for that kind of like, doesn't follow uh, the standard sort of like song structure, right? So yeah. anyway, like I said, before we played this clip, the drummer, and let me just go through the roster real quick because we haven't done that yet. But the uh, the drummer's name is Bill Berry. And uh, you also have Peter Buck on guitars, which I said, Mike Mills on bass. And Mike Mills also sings a lot of the backup vocals, which has always been um, a a favorite uh, aspect of R.E.M. songs, uh, to me at least, is his backing vocals. And then Michael Stipe, of course, uh, lead singer. So that's the core group. That's, That's the founding members. So anyway, Bill Berry, the drummer, is the forehead and the eyeballs that you see on the record cover.
1: And it gets yeah, cut, it cuts cuts his face off at the nose, cuts
3: off at the nose, and below below that is a very subtle picture of two um, buffaloes, and so that's kind of like a like, oh yeah, like a buffalo bill, I guess is what they're trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> I
4: mean, but
3: when you when you listen to a lot of the songs, they are talking about, and this this song in particular, uh, this is like I said, this is a very political uh, album. And they're talking a lot about this song in particular is about sort of the founding fathers of the country. Um, And the next song that we play also very much so about just sort of the original genocide, I guess, of like the Indians and shit, but we'll get into that next native Americans, native Americans. Sorry. is what you meant to say, brother. Sorry. So anyway, (laughs) here's the, um, here's some lyrics from this and this kind of, alludes to what you're talking about with uh what's the guy the mercer James Mercer with James Mercer or even talking heads David Byrne or even freaking Donald I mean, Fager, I was thinking CNN. Bob Dylan man yeah or so you're
1: just like what the fuck are you talking about
3: yeah so listen to this but that's the thing though he's it, it's very obvious what he's talking about here but anyway here's the first verse birdie in the hand for life's rich demand the insurgency began and you missed it I looked for it and I found it. Miles Standish, proud, congratulate me. A philanderer's tie, a murderer's shoe. So, Miles Standish. I had no idea who Miles Standish was, but that's a person, and he was like uh, on the on the Mayflower, basically. Uh, oh, got it. Yeah. So he was like, he was a military officer. Uh, hired by the Pilgrims as a as an advisor for the Plymouth Colony, so like literally the, the the first colony in America, right? So he's saying, "Miles Standish, proud, congratulate me for like basically taking over the land or whatever." And like the second verse, "Life's rich demand creates supply in the hand of the powers, the only vote that matters." As in, like, life's uh, bounty or whatever, supply. Mm-hmm. All we're doing is giving power to the wealthy or whatever by just buying right. all this shit. That's what, yep. it, what he's getting at. So anyway, um, but I don't know if you, if you don't know how the earlier R.E.M. songs sound or sounded, you may not really pick up on how much, like, how interesting the drums sound compared to what came before it right like the drumming was more straightforward on their earlier stuff, and in this album like like what they were saying it's like it's, it's no it's no surprise that he's on the album cover, you know, yeah, uh but anyway, something that what's interesting is th- so this album is kind of the first one that got them to sort of start to get mainstream. And then it really took off with Out of Time a few years later. But um, so much of this album like contradicts like sort of the standard formula for a very mainstream popular uh, music act, right? So like the album cover is an example of that. They and they apparently REM does this a lot. Uh, there's no apostrophe in the word LIFES on. The, like the name of this album,
1: right? Live Switch Pageant. They well, that's not the name of this album. Yeah, it is. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> Take that out, brother. For some reason, I was thinking of the. So Fables there's no
3: one. there's no apostrophe. If you look at the back of the album cover, which I'm looking at right now, the songs are out of order. But huh. but like not out of order, like the numbers are out of order. The song tracks don't match up with the track list. Which oh my god. Which, back in the 80s, must have been confusing as fuck, right? Dude.
1: But I anyway. Mean, so they're just, they're trolling.
3: Yeah, I guess Are so. they
1: purposely trying to to make sure they don't reach the
3: mainstream? So here's what's interesting, and I didn't make this connection until right now. On the left side, and I'll have to post a picture on the on the, um, the side, the, the show notes of this episode on the website, so you guys can see what I'm talking about. Uh so on the left side Begin the Begin actually is listed as track one. But the okay. the track below it is Hyena, which is not track two. That's actually I think like track Looks like it's track five. Yeah, track five, exactly. Um but on the right side of the back of the album, you have on the left side the tracks out of order, but on the left side there's a bunch of tr- there's squares like check almost like checkboxes, and next to each checkbox is, a like a two or three words from each of the songs. So I, I'm I'm guessing this is the right order over here, but with a lyric from the from the song because the first box I found it, Miles Standish proud, that's from track one. So it's almost like they want you to like listen and pay attention to the lyrics, and then come in and fill out the track record the way it's supposed to be. That's kind of cool. It is cool because they're almost like. Pay attention to the lyrics, you know? That's what we want you to associate with, like, the track list is, like, like listen to the fucking words, you know? But anyway, that's my guess. I could be way off, but I bet you that's exactly what they did. But anyway, that's obviously sort of weird, right? That's not something that most bands do, put the songs out of order. What's funny is, so I bought the record, the vinyl, and I remember I was like, wait, this isn't right. Like, I knew it wasn't right because I was so used to seeing the track listing in the correct order you know yeah anyway, so anyway um let's move on dude to hang
1: on one. have you looked have you looked it up man maybe you've got maybe you've got like a really rare pressing no 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 that's that's perp that's, <laughs> that's no, no, no 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 dude plus dude, this is my my mind would have jumped straight to that
3: this is a fucking reissue anyway this is a reprinting uh, of it anyway um so Stuff like that, right? They did. They did weird things like that. That that wouldn't. That doesn't align with. And not to mention, like po- political songs, right? What's funny is uh, that same interview that I was reading, off uh, the quote from Michael Stipe from the Guardian that he did in 2011. He was talking about how they started to gain popularity. It's sort of very similar to. It seems like the way that that um, Tom York was dealing with the success that they got on OK Computer. Yes. He says that, um, here's a quote from Michael Stipe. I had to grapple with a lot of contradictions back in the 80s. I would look out from the stage at the Reagan youth, as in Ronald Reagan, right? Right. That was when R.E.M. went beyond the freaks, the fat girls, the art students, and the indie music fanatics. Suddenly, we had an audience that included people who would have sooner kicked me on the street than let me walk by unperturbed. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but it was certainly an audience that, in the main, did not share my political leanings or affiliations and did not like how flamboyant I was as a performer or indeed a sexual creature. They probably held lots of weird, or wait, I'm sorry, they probably held lots of my worldviews in great disregard. And I had to look out on that and think, well, what do I do with that? So there you go.
1: Yeah, that's, huh? I Especially, mean, that's not something you think about. Um, but yeah, the the more famous you get, the more likely that you're gonna that your sound, you know, your music might attract people as fans that you otherwise wouldn't align with politically or, you know with your worldview or anything. Right. And yeah. You you got to kind of struggle with that, you know, as yeah. a reality. Uh,
3: especially, uh, you know, if, if he's up there singing this track that we just played to a bunch right. of, of Reagan supporters and he's singing about, uh, you know, supply and demand, give us power to the, to, to the wealthy as a bad thing. I would think that most people in like a Reagan crowd probably wouldn't agree with that. But there you go. The funny thing about Michael Stipe, he's well known for sort of cryptic lyrics. This isn't so cryptic, but some of his other stuff is where it's like, you know, you have to really dig into the lyrics. And I bet you a lot of people in the crowd, especially when they became more and more popular, only came to listen to the the hits, you know. So they might not yeah. even know what he's talking not, about.
1: Not paying attention to the lyrics. Yeah, exactly.
3: So anyway, let's let's segue into the next track here. Uh, and you're going to see the theme kind of continue as far as like the lyric subject matter is concerned. But uh, this song, um, it's got such a great feeling to it. It's very optimistic sounding. His voice uh, uh, kind of is very sort of um, emotive, I guess, or like very... Like Michael Slapper is such a great rock voice. It's like you know,
1: there's really none other like it. It but seems anyway. like he sings in a deeper. He like, has a
3: pretty wide range.
1: Range, yeah. And his and the earlier stuff, it seems like he sings more lo- on the low end. Yeah, yeah. So
3: anyway, this song is called Koyahoga. Mm-hmm.
1: vibes that put me in like a autumn fall headspace overcast guys chilly what about it put you in that vibe that mood i don't know yeah some i you know sometimes songs will just put me in a frame of mind i guess just it just felt like it felt like a, a you know winter coat Warm, snuggy gloves, kind of okay. song. I don't know, man. Did you? Pick what are the up? lyrics? I mean, yeah. it sounds like he's singing about like a homecoming kind of thing, or they're thinking back to his youth. Yeah. So okay. He used to go.
3: I, so I I thought that too when I casually would just pick up on words here and there, like when I heard this song for the first few times before I really sat down and read the lyrics. It sort of and knew that this was a more political record, right? So let me read them to you. Let's put our heads together and start a new country up. Our father's father's father tried, erased the parts he didn't like. Let's try to fill it in. Bank the quarry river swim. We knee skinned it, you and me. We knee skinned that river red. I don't know what that fucking means. The chorus says This is where we walked. This is where we swam. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. So that to me, what he's singing about, especially this this line here, our father's father's father tried erase the parts he didn't like. That's says in like our forefathers who came over here, Erased the parts he didn't like, meaning uh, took out the Native Americans, is what he's singing about. Yeah, er- erasing yeah. quote unquote indigenous yep. people and their culture. yeah And so the chorus to me reads as. It's almost like he's going from the perspective of the indigenous people that used to live here. He says, this is where we walked. This is where we swam. Hold on, let me say that again. I keep fucking up. We swam. (laughs) We swam. We swam. We swam. (laughs) This is where we walked. This is where we swam. Take a picture here. Take a souvenir. As in like this land, you know, that we as Americans or living on now, is where indigenous people used to walk and swim, and all we do and now is sh- their lives. Yeah, we show up and like, hey, look at this great, let's take a picture in a fucking souvenir, you know? Right, right. Let's go to the the Grand Canyon and, and grab a fucking magnet or whatever for our refrigerator.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, so I'm looking at this is off topic a little bit, but I'm looking at the Wikipedia for this album and I guess you have a vinyl copy. Yeah. Uh, is side one labeled dinner side and side two supper side? Let me take a looky-loo here. I mean, you've got a re-release, so I don't know. If maybe that's just in the original versions. But no, no, no. Hold on. It's it's. I'm just wondering if there's any yes. reason. Yes, you're right. So yeah. side A, dinner side. Yeah. Dinner I mean, and those supper. Those are the same. It means the same thing, right? dinner and supper that's the same
3: yeah you're right you're right but i think supper is sort of a colloquialism for a
1: certain i'm guessing a certain part of the country probably says supper yeah, supper time maybe right um but anyway it um, does talk about the incorrect album track listing we right the notes right yeah it's it's orders given one five ten eight two seven four nine three eleven it leaves out uh superman
3: yeah so interesting and that's uh, the underneath stream. the bunker Yeah, so anyway, um, let me read another part of the the lyrics here. Uh, It says, um, Let's put our heads together and start a new country up. Up underneath the riverbed, we'll burn the river down. So Cuyahoga uh, is this well-known river in Ohio that was so uh, notoriously polluted that it caught fire several times in the fifties and sixties. Wow. So that's what he's saying. We'll burn the river down. That's how much we're going to pollute these rivers is that we're going to, they're going to catch on fire. And so like, apparently like that was one of the fires that led to the founding of the EPA back in the day. Oh shit. So like here is, so, you know, this song is sort of like a, like a call to arms or whatever for like activists and stuff. Because he's saying, "Hey, let's let's start a new country up. We could start start again, you know, like sort yeah." Of, it's sort it's of
1: very John and Yoko, you know.
3: Yeah, sure. Imagine. Right, right, exactly. But anyway, um, so now I got to figure out what our next track is going to be, and that's going to be tough because I've gone back and forth. But I got to go with track number ten, which is called. Just a touch.
1: great It was very punk yes it is q and there's a good reason for that <laughs> the drummer especially the drum beat was very punk yeah so here's here's
3: why it's a got a, a very punk vibe right uh this is actually one of the first songs they wrote as a band together and so they oh, decided, that's awesome yeah and they actually you know they, they had recorded it you know before in the past but they just never put it on an album so like they decided like, hey let's let's re-record it and put it on this album. So anyway, um, I, I don't know if this is 100% factual or not, because I, I found it on a, um, actually a really, really cool blog. Uh, it's a blog spot, so it's one of those like old uh, blog formats, but it's called the REM Project Blog. And this guy uh, sort of went, his goal with this blog was to go album by album and talk about each song as a new post. And his, his article about this song in particular, he says that it's a, it's a story of the day that Elvis died, is the story behind the, the lyrics. He says, and again, I don't know where this guy got this from, but I'm going to say it because it's a cool story. He says, according to Michael, as a Michael's type, when he was working as a busboy in St. Louis as a teenager, there was a Elvis impersonator performing at the restaurant. And instead of canceling the show when the death of Elvis was reported, the impersonator who had not heard the news showed up anyway, and was perplexed that the audience was made up entirely of women dressed in black because they were mourning. I guess I don't fucking know. Oh
1: my god! But yeah.
3: the the poster for the show for this impersonator was advertised as "Is it Elvis or just a touch?" and that's the name of the song, "Just a Touch."
1: Oh my god, that's great. <laughs> so anyway.
3: Yeah, cool song. Anyway, uh, I love that they um, that they decided to to resurrect an old song and throw it on this album because, like you said, it's a it's definitely it's punk. Like it's that eighties punk. The early. I 80s. liked it, man. Yeah, it's great. But that's I what wish that's more of that. That's how REM started, though. Like they were in the punk scenes back in the day. You know,
1: well, that was, when did they actually start? Because Murmur doesn't sound like that. No, it doesn't. Uh, they started in
3: nineteen eighty. Okay, so the you was yeah, I mean three, right? Yeah, so you know when they were forming or when they first started and it was probably playing in the, in the garage or whatever. Yeah, they're probably playing punk rock, you know. Sure. But like, if you think about, I always like to think about music in the same way that I like to think about like the branches on the evolutionary tree, right? The species, or whatever. Like, if you think about the branches of fucking music or whatever, I talked about Talking Heads earlier. Both sort of stem from punk rock, right? But then it's like. Talking Heads goes one way on a Spons new branch. the new wave. For new wave. Uh, and then REM starts to make this other branch that just turns into alt rock, which eventually leads to grunge, you know. So like they all sort of start from punk, right?
1: Yeah. But anyway. That's uh, cool. And then on the other, you know, you got a whole other branch uh, for blues, you know. And well, yeah. Well, blues goes and, even and further to, back. They meet they meet together so often.
3: Well, no. I would say the blues is like the fucking trunk of the fucking rock branch. Or rock oh, I guess tree, so, you know? yeah. No, you know, you or, hey, you know what?
1: Maybe gospel music, kind of like what we were talking about in yeah, our yeah. Kings of Leon episode. Yeah, you know? you're right. You're right.
3: Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. If you keep going back, right, it's like yeah. gospel, blues, rock, and then rock branches off into all these other fucking genres. But anyway, um, so yeah, that song's great, right? But anyway, the, the reason I play that is, you know, they just did a lot of really creative things on this album. Like, they threw in a punk rock song. Um, like, if you heard on that song, too, and I guarantee you this is not the way they used to play it, but there was, like, a piano in the background.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know? An old-timey sound and Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hockey-tonk. Right.
3: And um, on some of the other the, the other songs,
1: um,
3: there's a song, and I almost played it. But you know what? We're going to play it. We'll play the opening, because um, it's really only... The opening—it's not—it's not something that stays throughout the whole song. But uh, let's play, let's play track number eight, uh, just a little bit of it. Uh, it's called "I Believe." Yeah, so you see that how that banjo just comes out of nowhere?
1: Yeah, that was almost like a separate idea. Yeah. I mean that song could start with that snare hit to completely take off that banjo. You know? Right.
3: Now play play the opening to Underneath the Bunker, track six.
1: Okay, now what style of music is that?
3: I don't know. It's almost like a Spanish, like, you
1: know. It's sound like Gypsy. What'd you say? Gypsy. Gypsy, yeah. That just came to mind because I was sure. listening to that Aldi Miola earlier.
3: Yeah, but anyway.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, they're all over the place on this.
3: But what's funny about that is that those are the two songs. Nope, I'll take it back. I was about to go. I was about to have a theory. I, was, I thought those were the two tracks that were left off the track testing yeah. on the back but I believe it's not
1: underneath the bunker was underneath the bunker so, was So so the two songs that that the, the so it, the last two songs on each side were were not featured oh, Okay. On the track list. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So yeah,
3: a lot of cool things on this album. Uh this sort of got them uh it was their most popular album to date. Um, it peaked, uh, I think it peaked it says uh, 43 in the UK, but it was their first gold record hit number 21 uh, on the Billboard charts so from then on out it just became more and more they became more and more popular Um, but anyway what I've always loved about REM you could hear it on some of the tracks the, the, the backup vocals I've always loved that I think it adds another layer of like Mike Mills is a great vocalist and he he's a bass player. He does a great job. Um, but uh, they just have a very wide range. They're not afraid to, to do interesting different things. The lyrics are always really intriguing. The way that they put together songs is different, you know. They they you know, they always just craft the songs in ways that you're not expecting, you know. And I think this this album is kind of a perfect example of, like, they decided, you know, they had such a measurable time recording Fables of the Reconstruction that it feels like they just really sort of opened up and, like, just decided to to just have fun. And, you know, that's what this record became. And I think uh, the producer, obviously, uh, has a lot to do with the way that it sounds. You know, like, the drums just sound like you know, loud and confident and like his vocal sound just great. You know, the guitars are great. Everything's great. So yeah, that's, that's our, um that's our quick peek at REM's life's rich pageant. I would say uh, it's one of those albums that you need to listen to all the way through to get a good feel for it. Uh That was just kind of a scratching the surface. But Q, I would say to you, if you like to murmur, you need to listen to their first four albums all the way through
1: okay yeah i've i've heard murmur and i've heard reckoning okay you've heard those two all the way through yeah murmur is 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 great that's an album that we might circle
3: back to later at a later date um but uh yeah their first four albums are just amazing and then you know the next album too you know you know it's funny i said for some reason i uh I, I I guess Spotify is missing some of their albums because yeah they are. I said that they they made an album every year for the first four years of their existence as a band, but that's actually not true. It's it's actually they're actually more prolific than that. They came out with an album from '83. Through eighty eight, so for the first six years of their existence, every year they came out with an album. I mean, that's fucking impressive.
1: That's yeah, that's pretty fucking crazy. It's it's
3: crazy. I think the Beatles were were like that. They they came out with like multiple albums in the same years. At some yeah, some
1: I know ones. Marvin Gaye was also yeah. extremely prolific in his early years. Yeah, it's just insane. Uh, but anyway.
3: So to close out. First of all, let's just tee up the next, the next full-length episode. Uh, we're going to continue our Radiohead uh, fest with Amnesiac, uh, and this is we're nearing the end, I guess, because we're going to end on no. Actually, we got three, we got three left because we're going to end on In Rainbows. So anyway, we're going to do Amnesiac, yes. um, but in between that, we will have a sidetrack episode. I'm not sure what we're going to cover. But to close out this episode, first, actually, I got you know what? I just keep getting ahead of myself. Go to our website, nofillerpodcast.com, uh, where we have show notes for every episode. Uh, you can listen to all the episodes. Uh, you can find sources for the, for each uh, episode, as well as a track listing of every song that we that we mentioned, including the what you heards and the intros and the outros and all that good stuff. But anyway, so to close out this episode. The last song on this record, which was also the second single, is called Superman. And uh, interestingly enough, it is a cover of a song called Superman, of course, by a band called The Click, which came out in 1969. So uh, it's a pretty faithful rendition of the song it sounds exactly like the rem song but we're going to play uh the click version uh again came out in 1969 so again that is our episode on rem's 1986 album life's rich pageant uh again my name is travis and my name is quentin and we'll talk to y'all next time